Father, there's not much to add to all those prayers. We just desire that as we leave here, we will continue to praise you, continue to see you working in our lives and speaking to us through your word. We know that that is what you have designed, and we desire to not only be in tune with what you said and what you revealed, but that we may also be empowered to live out what you revealed to us in your word. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get into the book of Romans. This morning, we're going to look at beginning in verse 27 through 31, maybe. That's the goal. Follows that most important passage that uh, we spent lots of time in because of its importance. And I've been talking about it being at the heart of what God wants to communicate, at the heart of the revelation of all the Bible. And most commentaries also say that that passage, which is only one sentence, is the heart of the book of Romans. So this follows it up. And it doesn't expand anything. It reiterates the same thing. And in some ways, it answers possible questions in the minds of those that were initial readers who were believers with a Jewish background. Many of them, half the church, were probably Jewish in the city of Rome. Just a few slides here, a couple of them to give you a feel for the city. Uh, on that picture, Rick. yes. When we look at it, um, is the racetrack below us here? I'm, I every time I look at this, I try to think. No, nope. the racetrack. This is the east end. The racetrack is that way on this slide. In other words, that other photo. So this has been excavated or fallen in, or well, whatever. this is all. This is all that remains of the seating. That's why I show that. In other words, there was a stadium with seating that went all the way around the thing. Okay, okay. I, and that's um, the only remains. Oh, I thought we were looking at that building. No, 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 no. This is right here. <laughs> and then that, that uh, the stone structure would have been in the middle of it? Or? No, that's a later something or other. I'm, I'm not even sure what it is. Okay, so believers in the city of Rome, and you can see the extent of it. Chariot races, that sort of thing, were the main venue there. And if you take the trip, we'll plan on visiting that site, as well as the other ones. So, this passage, if justification is not by faith, that's the emphasis of the prior passage. And by the way, because of our nature, we always want to earn God's favor. We always want to do something. So that was not only prevalent amongst the Jewish people, but it's obviously kind of human nature. We have a hard time accepting something freely without any strings attached. And the way we receive it is just trusting, believing, by faith. That's the emphasis of the passage. So if it's not by faith, because a Jewish thinker in the first century would have thought, well, what about the law? What about the commandments? What about all these things? Well, if you had to earn in any way, then man could boast, and that would rob God of the glory of the magnificent work that he's done. And the Bible in that passage particularly is crystal clear 
It is by faith. It's for believers. Remember that little phrase there? And he emphasizes it again later in the middle of the passage as well. So now he's going to deal with this issue. He's going to deal with three questions that might arise. And he asks them as questions, as you'll see. So that's the first part. The second thing he'll deal with in this paragraph is... If there are two ways of justification, one for Gentiles and one for Jewish people, then that implies that perhaps there are two different gods. So he's going to emphasize one of the key ideas in Judaism, that there's only one God. And if there's only one God, then he's provided one way, one means of access to him. That's the center of the passage. And then the last verse, a Jew would think, well, What about the law? Isn't the law significant? Does this take away from the law? Does it uh, leave the law unfulfilled if you do not obey it? Well, you can't obey it. He's already made that point and gain access to God. But in fact, his closing little statement there is actually justification by faith fulfills the law. So we'll want to discuss what he means by, by that. So we're going to deal with these issues in this paragraph. And it's rather simple, grammatically, short sentences, easy to follow. So we don't have to break it down like we did in the long sentence from 21 to 26. And I think straightforward, so it shouldn't take us as long as it took us in that other paragraph. So after an introduction, the main bulk of the book deals with God providing righteousness to sinful man. That goes all the way to the end of chapter 8. And we've broken this down into the first major part. We've got to be convinced that we stand condemned before a holy God. And there's nothing that we can do to change that condition. And we spent lots of time in verse 18 of chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20. Now we're in the portion, and we've just completed the heart of it, justification. In other words, how do you stand in a right condition before a holy God? The Bible calls that justification. You could also call it acquittal. It involves forgiveness of sin, but it also involves a standing of righteousness. And that'll run through the end of chapter 5. And we've broken this one down. We looked at that. Sentence 21 through 26, God provides this justification, and we might even say not only provides it, but makes it evident or manifests it, makes it available and visible, you could say. And what follows that, following using P's as my alliteration here, the priority of justification, the priority is that we enter into it by faith. So he's going to stress the idea of faith here. That's the priority, 27 through the end of the chapter. And uh, hopefully when we get back, when I get back from the Ukraine, we'll look at the next one. We'll look at the Old Testament pattern, which includes Old Testament characters. So first two verses here. And by the way, there's several little sentences in there, mainly questions that he will answer. We're going to have the exclusion. He's going to emphasize that personal merit or personal works are excluded by the concept of being justified by faith or receiving salvation. It's by faith and faith alone. You can't add anything to it. Can't add church attendance. Can't 
add family background, can't add religious heritage, you can't add baptism, nothing adds to it. And by the way, in some ways, Lordship salvation is right on the edge of adding works to faith. That's exactly right. The beginning of my sentence? Yeah. Lordship salvation, which is very common in our culture, in fact, a lot of people in this church even hold to it, is on the edge of, if not adding works to salvation. Faith and faith alone. Okay? So the exclusion, and this is a passage that emphasizes that. Not only did 21 through 26, but also uh, 27 through 31 stresses the idea justification has to be by faith and faith alone. Connie. I, I opened a can of worms. Yes. The idea that you are saved, you make Jesus look Yes. Well, that's part of it, but more the idea that you have to demonstrate through your works that you are, in fact, saved. Otherwise, it's questionable whether you are or not. Yeah. That you're saved, that you have made the, the point of releasing control of your life to Christ and that that's a condition for salvation. That's what that right. heresy so, is all about. Yeah. The scriptures say exactly the opposite. Yeah, I wouldn't call it quite a heresy, but probably a misunderstanding of scripture. That's pretty strong. Uh, it's a horrible way. It's a horrible way to live. Because you never, you never have assurance of your salvation. Okay? No, there's no joy. No joy. Okay. Yes. Not only that, but this passage here. Absolutely. So it excludes personal merit. Merit. Does that fit into perseverance to the attitude? Yes. The reformed doctrine of perseverance of the saints is pretty much the same thing. Right. Okay. So where then is boasting? In other words. If the things that he talked about, this follows, the then, in other words, points back to 21 through 26, where then is boasting? And uh, the Jews had many things to boast about. They were the elect. They were God's chosen. God gave them his word. God gave them the covenants. They could think in terms of, well, God has done a lot for us. We can boast in that. Now, there's a fine line between that and boasting in terms of, okay, now we can earn our salvation based on this position that God has given us. Well, the answer is no, based on what he just said. It is excluded. There's nothing that we can boast in terms of anything spiritual. So just because you're born a Jew doesn't mean that you have a free walk doesn't mean that automatically you have a standing before God. In other words, a right standing or righteousness. So, what excludes it? Well, when we speak of faith, let's look at a couple of passages where Paul, of anyone in the first century, Paul, in fact, this is what he's saying in this passage. Would somebody look that one up? And then someone also who's got Philippians, we'll look that one up right away, Connie. And someone get James 4. Okay, uh, Dwayne. Paul, of anyone, 
He lived probably the best, what you might call, Jewish life that you could envision. He was a Pharisee. He was trained in all of the Old Testament, and he was meticulous in his observance. And notice what he says in Philippians 3. Somebody read it. Connie? Well, I also might have confidence in anyone else. In other words, confidence in my own efforts. That's the flesh. My own abilities, my own motivation, everything. And he says, I could have confidence. In other words, look at my life. Look at my background. He was so zealous. This passage doesn't stress that. He was so zealous that he would eliminate any opposition. And keep reading. If he may have confident flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin. He's bragging. A Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Okay, in terms of observing the law, you couldn't lay a blame on him. And if you read the rest of the passage, he considers all of that as what? Yeah. yeah, that that you flush down the toilet. In terms of a relationship with God and a standing before him. Okay? James, what does James say? 4.16. Read it loud. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. All such boasting is evil. So there's no boasting when it comes to a standing before God. It is received simply by trusting in what God has done, not what we can do. So, by what kind of a law? And notice the word law. Do you see anything unusual about the word there as opposed no to elsewhere? Pardon me? No word case. It's lowercase. Lowercase. It's not capitalized. It's not capitalized. So the translators are already giving you a clue. It's the same word, by the way. It's namas, same word that you have that refers to the Old Testament. Same word that in some context we saw, law and the prophets, refers to the Pentateuch. Same word that refers to the Mosaic Covenant. But here it is not capitalized. Why do you think that? Okay, he's talking about a principle of law. In other words, a principle of obedience or a principle of works. All right, so it's used in that sense of a principle or a concept of somewhat like what we might refer to the laws of nature. In other words, something that governs something else. Well, of law or of works. In other words, more specific. That we just... Be like keeping all the dietary, all the washing, all the... Doing what Paul did. Yeah. In other words, every aspect. And if he did stumble, then he was very quick to offer the appropriate sacrifices that were provided for that means. Therefore, he could stand and could say that he was blameless. Okay? And the answer is no. And we'll see that in a moment. So there's no boasting. So it rejects... All human effort, whether it's front-loaded or back-loaded, it looks outside of self, eliminates boasting, looking outside of self, it looks to God. In other words, we look to what God has provided. That's why the cross is so important, and we stressed it last week. 
So he answers it, no, but by a law of faith. Now, there's not a stipulation in the Mosaic law of faith, but notice it's lowercase again. In other words, there's a principle of faith. In other words, a principle of trusting something outside of myself. Trusting what God has done as a substitute because I can't die for my sin because then I'm done. I need someone else to die. All of the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament were a substitute and God was passing over sin until Christ came and died once for all. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. So no, the answer is no, but by a law of faith. So he deals with the issue of if justification were not by faith, then it would open the door for boasting. And that first question that I, that we proposed or issue that we proposed, and that would take away from God's glory because it all goes to him. Everything goes to him. In other words, he is the one that's provided everything. A commentator by the name of Stifler says, Faith says, first of all, that man is so hopeless. We call that what? Total depravity. Man is so hopeless, helplessly a sinner. That's total depravity. So guilty, that's condemnation. So guilty even with his law of works, because the law requires perfection. So guilty even with his law of works that God's grace alone can save. Good statement. Only what God has provided. Okay? For we maintain, verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith. So he's just repeating what he said in 21 through 26, centering in on how we enter into that relationship And what brings us into a right standing, we call that justification. We maintain that a man is justified by faith. And if that's not clear enough, he's going to add apart from works of the law. So faith, it's faith in Christ, because you go back to what he already said. He doesn't repeat it. He's just giving you the heart of 21 through 26. And if that's not clear enough, he says that, in a different way in Ephesians 2. Somebody look that one up. And even more clearly in Galatians 2 and also in Galatians 3, who wants to do Ephesians. In fact, some of you, most of you probably have it memorized. Bill? For by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should go. All right. And all of you probably have it memorized. Who's got Galatians 2.16 and 3.22? Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Okay, by the works of the law, not justified. But through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. Okay, he almost repeats it. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Okay, over and over and over. Okay, <laughs> did you get it? <laughs> 322, who's got it? Can't miss it. 2.16 is so crystal clear. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Christ might Faith in Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Good. Okay. So this 
glorifies God. When we believe in solely what he has done apart from anything that we can do. So it just reiterates, so it makes it crystal clear. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What did he say in verse 21? He just said, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is manifested. Remember verse 21? He adds here, reiterates, apart from the works of the law. No works. All right. Yep. Well, that one said, you believe, and then you get to faith in Christ. Now, I am of the opinion that all of everything, the desire to even, we, I don't think we have a natural desire to even. We don't. But all of it. There's none it. that seeks after God. Remember, no. that's depravity. Yeah, so that's, that's like really out there. That's why it's so critical to be praying for others, because Jesus said, no man comes to me unless the Father draws him. You right. need to be praying for that. Don't yes. But that's important. Just yep. everything. I can't go, oh, I'm going to believe, and then I'll get it out. No. Yep. It's all of him. So verse, that's verse 27 and 28, the exclusion of personal merit. Totally excluded. Verse 29 through 30, the exclusiveness of justification. And let's take a look at it. Or, now he's going to argue the other point, if there's two ways of salvation, one by works, or one for the Jews, and one by faith, one for the Gentiles, then that almost implies that there are two gods. So he's going to argue, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is there no salvation for Gentiles? Because there's only one true God. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Now, if Jews knew their Old Testament, they would know that God has made a provision for Gentiles. Yes, they are a chosen nation a chosen race, if you will. And God had a particular plan. In fact, last week I tried to emphasize that world history is Jewish. So they're at the heart of everything God is doing. But he has made provision, and the intent was that he would use the nation of Israel in order to glorify himself amongst the nations. They were to be an example of godly people so that the Gentiles would see and see the nature and character of God. Unfortunately, because they're sinners, they failed in doing that. So, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? In other words, do Gentiles have access to him? And the answer is yes, Gentiles also. So he's the God of Gentiles also. And this would raise in their thinking several passages. And we can look at some of them. Gentile salvation. We don't need to look up Genesis 12.3. Because even before there's a nation, God promises to Abraham and then enters into covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. But in 12.3, he promises that through Abraham's descendants, they would what? They would be a blessing to the nations. In other words, they would be the means by which Gentiles would come into a relationship. Galatians 3 expands that, and in Christ, Gentiles have access to God. Galatians 3. Are Muslims Gentiles? Yes. A Gentile is anyone that is not a Jew. Okay? 
Somebody look up Exodus 19. This is immediately before the Ten Commandments. In other words, God is laying out the law. In fact, that whole chapter kind of explains what God is doing with the nation of Israel. Somebody got 19? And somebody look up Isaiah and notice what the two passages in Isaiah. Who's got it? Who's got them? Isaiah. Okay, you got Isaiah. Somebody, you got Exodus 19. Look at uh, particularly 5 and 6. 19, 5 and 6. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. Okay, let me stop you right there. God is saying to the children of Israel through Moses, yes, he's called them into a special relationship. He saved them from bondage in Egypt. Now he has this plan. They are going to be a special possession. And notice for what purpose. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me the kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, a kingdom of priests. What's implied in that? They intercede between God they are, and man. Yes, they're mediators. Exactly. They're mediators between God and man. In other words, God has called them as a special possession, not just for them, but to be mediators to the Gentiles as well, even though it's not stated explicitly there. Isaiah 42.6, this is more explicit. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. Now those are Jews. God is going to keep them, take them by the hand, this is prophetic. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. A light for the nations. And once they can see that light, now they can desire and perhaps seek after God to have that same light. Similarly, in 49.6, you got that one also, early? Uh, yes, it starts, he says, and we're talking about the Lord saying, is it? It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That his salvation may reach to the end of the earth, the reach Gentiles. Okay? So this is Old Testament. This is the design for the nation of Israel. This is the plan for them, God's intention. Terry. The New Testament... They talk about later Romans, the mystery was that the Gentiles were going to be included. But really, it wasn't a mystery because God was foretelling it earlier. Well, it's a mystery in the sense that there is going to be an equality between Jew and Gentile in terms of access. That's not clear. In these passages, Israel are the mediators, so they are the stand between God and sinful Gentiles. But in the New Testament, there's an equality. That's the mystery part. Yep. Okay. And there's lots of examples. Ruth is an example. A person that wanted to follow after Naomi's, your God shall be my God, a Moabitess, Rahab, a despised Canaanite. The book of Hebrews makes it clear that she believed by faith. In other words, she was a believer. There's others, but these are the outstanding ones. Naaman, a Syrian, also was a believer (coughs) in the one true God. And notice Ruth, through the mediation of the Jewish person, her mother, 
Rahab through the spies, Nam the Syrian in what is it, Second Kings, I believe. It's through Israel. Well, through the servant girl, the, the slave that yeah. had in his house. Mm-hmm. And when Job went to the Ninevites, this is a result of Job, even though he was the reluctant prophet, the Ninevites Jonah. are converted. Jonah. I mean, Jonah, rather. Sorry about that. With a J, my mind. <laughs> Jonah, the reluctant prophet, Ninevites. And notice what it says. Somebody look up uh, Esther 8.17. This is after the Jewish people were on the verge of being exterminated and uh, an Old Testament holocaust that was averted as a result of Esther. And God did some mighty things. And as a result of that, what did Gentiles see, or at least the Persian Empire? Who's got it? I do. You got it? Read it. And in every province and in every city. This is the the empire in every province of the empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. And in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many... From the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. Okay. They declared themselves to be followers of the God of the the nation of Israel. So that was a testimony to the entire Persian Empire, what God did amongst the Jewish people there. So there's Gentile salvation, that little phrase, yes, of the Gentiles also would have reminded them of not only these passages, but examples that we lay out. Then verse 30, since indeed, and here's a comma here, so it follows, yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one, that's the independent clause. Since indeed God is one. God is one. What is that? The Jewish Shema, which is what passage? Anyone know? Remember? Numbers. Mm, you're close. <laughs> yep. A fundamental truth of Judaism. God is one. And the Shema is Deuteronomy 6.4. Okay? Every Jew knows that by heart before they can even speak. But there's other passages that say the same thing. We won't look them up, but if you want to mark them, basically Isaiah 45, 5 and 6 speaks of the unity of God. God is one. And Mark 12, 32, I don't know if it quotes this passage, but it quotes a similar passage in the Old Testament speaking of God being one. Now, interestingly in Deuteronomy, this is kind of a sidelight here, 6.4, when it says God is one, the Hebrew word is ekad. Ekad doesn't mean singularity. It means one as a possible multitude of others. In other words, like like one cluster of grapes. One ekad cluster of grapes with many facets or many individual grapes. So even though God is one, within it makes allowance for God to exist in three persons. So even the Shema makes allowance for the Trinity in the Old Testament. It's not explicit, 
but it makes allowance. And it's explicit in the New Testament. So, since indeed God is one, and this same God who is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith. Reiterate it again. Notice the theme throughout the passage. And he talks about the circumcised because this was one of the most important obedient areas. It was the sign of the covenant. It was not the essence of it, if you will. It uh, pointed to faith. And God justifies the Jewish people by faith and the non-Jewish people through faith since God is one. One way of salvation. But we have two different um, prepositions. One is justified by faith. Right. The other is justified through faith. faith. Yep. Commentators are divided. Some of them say there's a slight distinction here. There's probably more of a stylistic thing. Paul uses both in other places. And what he's probably calling attention to is... The Jew to be justified by faith. That's what he's been saying consistently. And the uncircumcised through that same faith. Okay. okay? So no distinction or a distinction of only slight stylistic difference. Okay? Or I guess you could say maybe the, the Jews would be circumcised by faith through what all was given to them, the whole shebang beforehand. Yeah. By faith in what God has revealed for them, yeah. including Messiah. Well, and, and even I'm just thinking the whole, you know, the whole works that he displayed before them, bringing the miracles, them out, the promises, and blah, yes. blah, 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 blah. But the uncircumcised don't have that same history. Mm-hmm. So their faith is but still it's, in But it's all through that. the same faith. Mm-hmm. It's still the faith, but it just doesn't have all that examples the, the Jewish but in this context, the object is Jesus Christ. Yeah, okay. So, in, in verse 22, you know, it says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. There is no distinction. Yep, reiterated. Now, this passage just repeats, if you will, or reiterates what he said in that long, complicated sentence. Is this like the question and answer part? Yeah, yeah. This is the question and answer part. <laughs> exactly. Because it totally changes, right? Exactly. Yeah. In fact, uh, remember he did this in chapter two. He asked a series of questions. This is the question and answer part. Good way of putting it. Verse thirty-one. And rather than the law not being fulfilled, justification by faith actually establishes the law. So we got to the last verse. Do we then nullify the law? That would be a question. Paul asks all the questions and he answers them as well. Do we then nullify the law through faith? So now the law is not so important. In fact, do we undermine it? Do we nullify it? Do we do away with it? What's the answer? Absolutely not. Remember the slide I gave you when we saw the other, uh, what is it, meigunoito in the Greek text. Strongest way that you can negate you could paraphrase it away with a thought. You could say, banish the thought. Let not such a thing be considered. You could paraphrase it, let it not be conceived of even. 
Don't even let it enter your mind. Perish the idea. Be it not so. Impossible. Good heavens, no. More in our contemporary language. Are you crazy? <laughs> Absolutely not. Okay, so it does not nullify the law. Absolutely not. Instead, we establish the law. And why can he say that? Because Jesus fulfilled all of the righteous demands of the law. Propitiation. He satisfied all the legal requirements and thus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all that the sacrifice, the Old Testament sacrifices anticipated. So we establish the law. The law is established in that it reveals God's character as holy and just and righteous and man lacking that righteousness, condemned. It also reveals sin. We saw that in, uh, what was it, verse 20, was it? Where the law reveals sin, and if that's not clear, Galatians 3.24, it's a tutor. We won't take the time to look them up, but let me just read them to you. 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. So we fulfill or establish the law so that we may be justified by faith. So the law is intended to lead us to Christ. The James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. So it demands absolute perfection. So it's only by a perfect sacrifice does that satisfy the legal requirements of the law and thus Christ fulfilled it. Christ fulfilled the law. And this is what he says in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And there's many ways and many aspects where Christ fulfilled it. He fulfilled it by obeying it perfectly. He didn't stumble in one point, only sinless. He also fulfilled it in that he offered the ultimate and perfect sacrifice that satisfies all the legal requirements of God. He was a propitiation. We saw that word. So he fulfills it in that sense. And he also fulfills it in this context in that he fills it fuller with more insight in that he gives explanation and interpretation of the law. If you read the following passages, he does that in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount there. Remember what follows here? You have heard it said, in other words, what the scriptures are, are spoken of, and in some cases even distorted. He deals with some of that. And then he says, but I say, and he goes to the very heart of the law, and the law deals with the heart attitude, not just the external evidence of it. Uh, remember, in that context, he talks about anger and uh, the origin of anger and that sort of thing. He also deals with adultery. It's not just the act, but what comes out of the heart. So he fulfills the law in that he fills it with 
and restores it, you might say, with the original meaning that God intended the law. So he's the fulfillment of the law. Linda. So as a junior high or teenager, surrounded by seven, whatever, you know, fleshly brothers and sisters, so he never got mad or said, that's my, it's my turn. He might have gotten he mad at them, but it was righteous anger. <laughs> but he never was like, you got that better than, not that in the no. Yep, hard to conceive, right? It's hard to imagine. Or as a toddler. Yeah, ooh, can you imagine that? Wow. He was never a... Okay. Well, we made it to the end of verse 31. Do you... Simple gospel message. There's bad news. Chapters 1, uh, 18 through 320. Total condemnation, total depravity, that's the bad news. Good news is the paragraph we looked at 21 through 26, God has made a provision. He has provided Jesus Christ to take our place. He died for our sin, simply put. And we just trust that what Jesus did on the cross is adequate, and we believe that, and that's it. Faith and faith alone. Who wants to close the doors? Terry. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time, for the study as you reveal yourself in your ways in the book of Romans, just pray, Lord, that we can not only hold on to how we're saved by faith, but also live for trusting you in our everyday. Pray for Ray as he goes on his trip, and please be with him with protection and blessings of spirit led open hearts to the folks that will be teaching here. Just pray for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you in June, Lord willing.